We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark for uh, coming up on a year and a half. And we encounter an event today, which is the last event of Jesus' public ministry and teaching. From this point on in the Gospel, uh, Jesus will only deal with his closest disciples and those orchestrating his death. So this is his last public hurrah. And one of the major themes we've been exploring throughout the Gospel of Mark is the theme of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to come under his teachings, what it means to join him on the way. And more often than not, throughout the Gospel of Mark, people don't get it. Or the call of discipleship is too much. Think of the rich young ruler. Give everything away and follow me. It was too much for him. Think of others who hear of Jesus' authority and they're astounded and yet they stop there. And so more often than not, people do not follow Jesus rather than follow him. And the first time in Mark's gospel when someone actually joins Jesus on the way, which is Mark's insider language of actually gets it and goes with Jesus, is in chapter 10. Do you remember who it was? The blind beggar Bartimaeus. You know, he's blind, but he actually sees spiritual realities. He reaches out to Christ in faith, and not only does he receive mercy, he also receives his physical sight. And we're told he joined Jesus on the way, the first exemplar of discipleship. So it's no surprise that in his last public teaching in Mark's gospel, Jesus touches on the issues of discipleship again. And in this example, we get uh, two extremes. We get the extreme of what not to do. Pretense, being like the scribes, and who uh, exhibits what it means to be a disciple, a poor widow. And so we should see this as the culmination of Mark's teachings on discipleship. If you want to know what the posture of someone who follows Jesus is, you find it in this passage. And so as we work through this passage this morning, uh, we're going to explore one big idea, and it's this. In Christ, there is no pretense. In Christ, there's no pretense. What I mean is that Jesus doesn't pretend to be someone he's not. What he says, he means. What he does is a reflection of who he really is. In Christ, there's no pretense. What I also mean is that when we are found in Christ, when we become disciples, we too will step out of our own pretending and pretense and into the freedom of being who Christ calls us to be. So open your Bibles up, uh, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. If you don't have a Bible, everything you're going to need will be on the screen in Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Do you remember who the last person to engage with Jesus was in Mark's gospel? Anyone? A scribe. A scribe comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how would you sum up the law of God? And Jesus says what? Class, how do we sum up the law of God? Wow, we got to go back to the basics this morning. Love God, love one another. Got it? Love God, love one another. Jesus says, that's it. That's the summary of the law. And the scribe says, that's right, teacher. And Jesus even said, you're not far from the kingdom. It's a pretty astounding interaction. It seems like a good interaction between the scribe and Jesus. But then all of a sudden, we take a U-turn and Jesus says, beware of the scribes. 
Beware of the people who've just emphasized that the summary of the law is loving God and loving neighbor. Beware of this man. Why this sharp U-turn all of a sudden? What's the problem? Pretense. The scribes are disposed to pretending. Pretense is where we get the word pretentious. And now we usually use the word pretentious to describe someone who is snobby or stuck up. And I hate to be pretentious, but I have to properly define the word pretentious. So bear with me. Uh, Pretense or pretentiousness is putting on a false front. It's attempting to appear better than you are or to know more than you do or to make yourself stand out above others. That is pretense. That is pretentiousness. And Jesus says, watch out for this. Watch out for the scribes because what you see is not what you get. They're false. They're not what they're claiming to be. And so whether Jesus is reflecting on the scribe he just encountered, it's hard to say, but I find it fun to imagine like this scribe just took his first philosophy 101 class and is coming to Jesus and being like, teacher, how would you summarize the commandment? You know, and it's not really a question. He just wants to show his knowledge. Uh, But what we know, whether that's what's happening or not, is that Jesus is calling out the general spirit of the scribes. You see, the scribes, they held unrivaled influence and authority in first century Palestine. And believe you me, they knew it and they wanted other people to know it too. And so to stand out, they wore full-length prayer shawls with tassels, uh, tassels attached to the four corners, which one scholar describes as a blanket-like mantle. Uh, they dressed totally unlike the everyday person. The everyday person wore colorful clothes. The scribes wore muted clothes. Uh, and it wasn't to be modest or humble, the point was to impress or stand out. So try to imagine the Kanye West of religious folk and you're thinking of the scribes. So when a scribe walked down the street or passed through a marketplace, uh, unless you were a laborer, you were expected to stand and respect them. You're supposed to show respect because they liked being noticed. They desired being noticed. And so in general, the movement of the scribes was prone to pretense or pretentiousness. And sure, this is irritating, but why such a severe warning of beware? Uh, New Testament scholar Eugene Boring, who is far more interesting than his name suggests, uh, says that the grammatical structure of the passage, yes, I know I'm talking about grammar now, which doesn't help his case, but the grammatical structure of the passage actually connects the devouring of widows' houses with making long prayers, that the two are actually linked as an idea. And here's what Boring says. The scribes pray in a way that attracts vulnerable widows to them as apparently pious and trustworthy people. Then they take advantage of them. So some scribes use their pretense for influence so that they can rob and oppress. And if this is the case, no wonder Jesus says, watch out, beware. For religious leaders who intentionally make themselves noticeable, who like positions of power and respect, look out, because there's religious people who will leverage the name of their God for their own gain. Watch out for those who put on a great show, who say many extravagant words, who can pray and pray and pray some more, but have no substance. Beware of those who use their religion as a tool of oppression rather than liberation, who take from the poor to increase their own wealth. And we need this warning today just as much as the disciples needed it back then, because religious pretense is alive and well. 
If you don't know who John Oliver is, you will now, and you're welcome. Uh, he has a show on HBO called Last Week Tonight, and it's comedic, it's informative, uh, it's a lighthearted and yet serious approach to news. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. I will warn you, if you watch it, there is some language I can't endorse, but his show always has substance that you can't find elsewhere on the news. And each week, Oliver addresses one major topic, and one of those weeks, the topic was televangelists. And Oliver and his team spent seven months investigating the financial practices of some televangelists, especially those who promote the prosperity gospel. And watching this segment broke my heart. Uh, and if you don't know what the prosperity gospel is, you're better off. Uh, the gist of it is this. God wants you to be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. If you can name it, you can claim it if you have enough faith. But the catch is you have to invest into this ministry, this leader, and then God will bless you in return. Wealth, health, and Bentleys. And pastors of this movement have been known to purchase $65 million jets, personal jets. They live in multi-million dollar homes. They live wildly extravagant lifestyles. And while this itself is problematic, what's even more insidious is how these pastors bankroll their extravagant lifestyles. It's not through the large donations of some other wealthy people. It's through a practice that makes false promises to desperate and poor people. And so over this seven-month period, John Oliver engaged with a specific televangelist who I won't name, and he received almost 26 letters, so pretty much a letter a week from this televangelist's uh, network. And each letter had a request for money. So the televangelist would send John Oliver a dollar, and then ask for like 36 in return or 42 in return with promises of reaping a spiritual blessing. And so John Oliver would, would send the money back and then he would get like uh, anointing oil or prayer uh, uh, blankies. And uh, one time, I kid you not, the televangelist sent John Oliver an outline of his foot and told him to trace his own foot around it and to send it back with some money and then he could be assured he'd walk in the footsteps of this televangelist's blessing. So over a seven-month period, 26 letters, John Oliver sent a total of $319, getting nothing in return. And all the while being promised that he's sowing for health and wealth and blessing. And Oliver concludes this way. He says, it's like having a pen pal who's deep in with some loan sharks. This is all hilarious until you imagine these letters being sent to someone who cannot afford what he's asking for. You see, the awful truth about this practice is that you don't become a millionaire by doing this to just one person. You don't become a millionaire by one person sending you $319 over seven months. You become a millionaire by doing this to thousands upon thousands of desperate and needy people who are looking for hope, who are looking for help. And so naturally, the segment in Last Week Tonight moves to the testimonies of false hope and promises made to the elderly, the sick, and the dying, and how these ministries thrive upon these very people. Some televangelists, I don't want to say all, but some televangelists are just religious con men. And what they're doing is disgusting, and it's heartbreaking, and it's pretense. Beware, Jesus says, of the religious leaders who devour widows' houses, those who use prayer to manipulate and simply want a life of influence and power. Perhaps it's some consolation that Jesus says, those who do this will receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation. 
Because this sort of pretense is foul and it's disgusting and it's evil. It's all done in the name of God. And if you've come across it within Christianity, I want to say I'm sorry. It's not surprising if you've concluded, having encountered something like this, that the Christian faith isn't worth its salt. And I don't want to stand above these people of these practices. I want to say, yes, they identify with the Christian movement. Yes, they are part of our family. And yes, we should be ashamed of their practices. And I'm sorry. So, of course, one of the, the warnings that Jesus is issuing is that pretense is a bad witness to the world. No one likes this witness to the world. But the heart of his warning is for all of us who follow him, whether we're leaders in the church or not. You see, it's a lot easier to point out pretense in other people, like I just did for this, this televangelist, than it is to point out the pretense within ourselves. But let's not miss what Jesus is up to here. Jesus is warning his disciples. He's warning anyone that would follow him to beware, to watch out. He's not just making an example of bad practices, but he knows how easy it is for even his own disciples to fall into the practice of pretense. He's not worried that the disciples are suddenly going to go and become scribes. Jesus is warning those who already follow him. He says, even if you follow me, you could fall into pretense. So watch out. Which means it's just as much of a possibility for us too. But I understand. It's easy to say, oh, no, not us. You know, we would never go that far. We would never do those practices of the televangelists. We would never rob widows' houses. We're not going to put up a false appearance like that. No, not us. Fear not, my friends, fear not. BuzzFeed has come to the rescue with a how pretentious are you test. And we can get some objective feedback. And I'll just, just give you a small sampling of this test. And if you check yes to any one of these, you might have some pretentiousness. Here's one. I relate to Sting a lot. I have facial hair. For ironic reasons. Tap water? Ugh. I own a fixed gear bike. I wear glasses even though I have 20-20 vision. I will not, and I had to check this one, I will not eat at a restaurant that has a menu with pictures on it. I enjoy discussing deconstructionism. I hate all popular music. I smell wine before I drink it. I buy only organic food and talk about it all the time. I believe that the book is always better than the adapted film. Now, how did you fare? Probably fairly well, because this is a silly test. You know, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with a fixed gear bike other than the fact that it's useless. The problem <laughs> is if you're riding it for street cred or to be in vogue or on fleek, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to do by riding the fixie. In the same way, there's nothing wrong with smelling wine before you drink it if you're actually a connoisseur of wine. But if you're just doing it to look civilized, then it's pretense. If you're doing it so that others feel small in your company, then it's pretense. In the same way, there's nothing wrong with saying that the book is always better than the movie, because it is. <laughs> so what's beneath then pretense and pretentiousness? What's beneath it? We want to be seen as better than others, which is pride. And some of us, we want to build up our self-esteem by lifting ourselves up in comparison to others. But often, not always, but often, this is an attempt to be seen more positively out there than we feel in here. It's because we're insecure. 
And we might even feel shame. And so we turn to pride. We turn to pretense to make up for it. You know, we say the right things and we like the right things and we play the right part all in an effort to find acceptance through popularity or recognition or humor. You name it. But my point is this. If we can live a pretentious life in trivial matters, you better believe we can be full of pretense when it comes to following God. Well, I'd love to go out for dinner with all of you, but uh, I give too much away to the poor, so I can't afford to go. Sorry, I can't join you for lunch because I've been fasting and praying for the past year. I'm impressed that you can listen to that music or watch Game of Thrones and not uh, compromise your Christian integrity. Good job. But more seriously, have you ever said, I'll pray for you, but that you don't do it? Have you ever said, the church, it should be more hospitable, but you don't actually make room in your life for new people, let alone make room in your life for people who look different than you or act different than you or have different interests than you? Have you ever ranted about how the church should be serving the poor but also miss pretty much every outward rhythm of your community group? Have you ever just shared your opinion and, and perspective of Scripture just to sound smart and wise? All the time. How many words do you use when you pray? Are you doing it to sound like you're holy, or are you doing it out of sincerity? You see, it's not so cut and dry. You, you, you could sincerely speak of your spiritual disciplines with no pretense what, at all, but actually be just sharing what's going on in your life. Or you could be sharing to sound holy, to sound impressive. It really comes down to what's going on in your heart. You might share ideals that you have about hospitality and service and be aware of how you fall short yourself in practicing them, or you might be doing it just to point out the shortcomings of others and try to elevate yourself above them. Often, however, we're just trying to present ourselves as better than we really are. And so we say the right things, but just to sound smart. We do the right things, but just to fit it. And I want to be fair, not everyone in this room is pretentious. You have a pretentious pastor, but not everyone in this room is pretentious. But no matter what, we better listen to Jesus' warning because he says, watch out. Because pretense, it's not beyond us. And as if it seeps into our lives, it will mess up our discipleship. It'll mess up how we follow him. Watch out. All of us are prone to it. So, so far in our passage, we've seen what discipleship is not what not to do, what to avoid. But Mark, he doesn't lead us there. If he did, we might conclude that following Jesus is just a reactionary movement, but it's not. We're not called to fundamentally define ourselves by what we're against. Yes, this portrait of discipleship that Jesus lifts up stands in distinction to practices out there and to patterns in the world, but discipleship following Jesus is fundamentally defined by what it is for, or more importantly, who it is for. So now we turn to the second part of our passage, the widow and her two cents in verses 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to them and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, 
all she had to live on. Building upon the, the theme of pretense, Jesus compares the giving practices of the, the wealthy and the poor. In 2011, a few researchers studied charitable giving in the United States, uh, and you want to know what they found out? People who can least afford to give are the ones uh, that donate the greatest percentage of their income. So the wealthiest, those earning the top 20% of society, contributed on average 1.3% of their income to charity. Top 20% of income, 1.3% to charity. In comparison, those in the bottom 20% of earnings donated 3.2% of their income to charities. And what's even more interesting is where that giving goes. The poor tend to give to religious organizations and social service charities, while the wealthy prefer to support colleges and universities and art organizations and museums. And so the researchers propose that the poor show more empathy giving to organizations that will support others in their predicament. Whereas the rich demonstrate self-interest, giving to organizations that continue their lifestyle and eliteness. And this present tension, the poor giving 3.2%, the rich only giving 1.3%, is also an ancient one. In the temple area, uh, in ancient Judaism, there was a treasury. There was an area that you could go to make an offering, and there was 12 offering bins. They were in the shape of shofars, uh, which we're thinking of implementing here. Uh, it was, you know, very public. And this makes sense. You know, temples, they don't run themselves. And so Jesus, he doesn't speak negatively of the temple asking for financial, you know, participation, but he's observing how the people are participating in it. So many rich people, they come into this area. It's a public arena. They put on the pomp and show. They put in large sums. But what does Jesus say? They all contributed out of their abundance. You know, $1,000, if someone gave $1,000, that probably sounds like a lot to many of us, especially if you're a student. But what is that to a multimillionaire? In short, it's negligible. The offering, it's not sacrificial. It doesn't impinge upon their lifestyle whatsoever. It's a maintainable line item in their budget. In short, it costs them next to nothing. It's pretense because it appears generous because of the amount, but it's not. It's not. And then there's this widow. She's got nothing going for her in an ancient patriarchal society. A, she's a widow, so she's marginalized for that. And she's a woman, which also puts her in a marginal position in society. She has nothing going for her. And she puts in two small copper coins, which Mark says it makes up a penny. And Jesus sees this, and what does he say? The poor widow has put in more than all of those, than everyone combined, who are contributing to the offering box. She, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had to live on, 100%. We have to do a serious heart check about this passage. How many of us actually believe Jesus? How many of us believe her penny was more than all of the rich people's contribution? Because pennies, they don't keep temples running. You know, pennies don't keep churches running. But that shows how prone we are to pretense. Hello, Eminem. Matt's just doing something. Uh, pennies don't keep organizations running. 
But it shows that then we're looking to the outward expression of people's actions rather than the inward disposition. You see, God, what this passage shows us, is far more concerned about our faithfulness and the maintenance of our religious systems. And God is far more concerned about what's going on inside of us than outward presentations. You know, a penny, a penny might not look like a lot to us. They're so insignificant to us that we've removed them from circulation. But to the widow, her penny was everything she had. It was all she had to live on. And you might think, well, it didn't really cost her much because she didn't have anything anyways. But once again, that can only be said from a posture of pretense. Because it is what she has. Even if it's relatively insignificant to us, it's significant to her. And she gives it all away 100%. Have you ever given away 100% of your income? Do you even give away 10%? She holds nothing back from God. And she can only do this, I imagine, because she trusts in God. She trusts that he is the one who takes care of the, the insignificant and the widow. Others, you know, they gave what they could spare, but this widow spared nothing. The, the penny might be negligible to the temple. It might be uh, unimpressive to the rich, but it is of great significance to God because the divine exchange rate looks at things differently. The value of a gift to God is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. The value of the gift is not the pretense of being seen as generous, but a radical trust in God's ability to provide. You see, what might look like a great gift in our eyes might be little in comparison to what someone could have given. And what this passage shows us is that no gift, whether of money, time, or talent, is too insignificant to give to, to God. But I want to focus, because our passage isn't just about finances, it's about discipleship. And yes, the two go hand in hand, because if Jesus is going to be your Lord, if you're going to follow him uh, wholeheartedly, it means that he will speak into financial realities. And so we have to ask, are we actually giving to Jesus out of our abundance? And in reality, is it just negligible? How much money are we giving? How much of our time? Is it all just an afterthought? Is it not even really sacrificial? Does it not even impinge? Or like the widow, do we hold nothing back from God? Is everything on the table? Does God determine how much time we spend with him? How much time we spend on anything at all? Where we put our finances? What we invest into? How much we give away? Does pretense kick in here? Do we ever present ourselves like we're wholeheartedly running after God when in truth we're just giving him our leftovers? And these are uncomfortable questions because as a whole, this is an uncomfortable passage. You see, on the one hand, we can see a proclivity within ourselves toward pretense. On the other, we can see that this radical lifestyle of the widow is beyond our grasp. What are we supposed to do? You know, we don't feel as bad as the scribes, but we're not as holy as the widow. We feel stuck in the middle, but let me assure you, it's not a middle. The widow demonstrates in Mark the real posture of discipleship. And it's pretense to say we are disciples of Jesus if we're not embodying her posture of laying down our entire lives for God. So we might actually be more full of pretense than we realize. But how do we get to where she is? Because I don't think Mark holds her up as an example to crush us. How do we get to where she is? 
How do we lay our entire lives down for Jesus, holding nothing back? Because it is a lot easier just to talk about her example than to live by it. It is easier to promote the good ideas of Christianity than to actually go and do them. The final Greek words of this chapter could be paraphrased, she laid down her whole life. And that's what Jesus is going to do in Golgotha. You know, unlike the scribes, Jesus has no pretense. He's not fake. He doesn't flatter with words. He doesn't lift himself up above others. What you see is what you get. What he says is true. What he does is always a reflection of who he is. And unlike the scribes, Jesus, he doesn't walk around in long robes. Rather, he's going to be disrobed. His clothes are going to be stripped from him on the way to the cross. He'll bear the shame of both public nudity and humiliation. Unlike the scribes, Jesus is not given the best seat in places of honor in the public spheres. Rather, even though he deserves these places, he is sent outside of the city to be crucified. Unlike the scribes, Jesus doesn't devour widows, but instead himself is devoured And he he doesn't make pretentious prayers, but makes a simple and yet profoundly powerful prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them. You see, the faith of the widow is just a picture of the faithfulness of Jesus. She put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus gives us everything he had his entire life. He lays it all down because he has no pretense in him. What we see is what we get, and his actions are always a reflection of who he is. This tells us something about God. The Son of God, who deserves to be clothed in splendor, who deserves the highest places of honor, who deserves our ultimate allegiance, died in this way for us. This unfathomable generosity, it guts our pretense. You did that for us? You did that for me? You did that even when I couldn't lay down my life for you? That'll do away with our pretense. You see, we don't have to pretend that we have our act together. We don't have to pretend that we're more righteous than we are. We don't have to pretend like we're holy. We don't have to pretend like we're doing better at this Christian thing than we are. We don't have to pretend at all. Because Christ laid down his life for us as we are. Not as we think we should be. Not for who we hope we might be. Not even for how we would prefer to appear. Christ laid down his life for us as we are. And this alone is what can cut through our pretense and get to our hearts. And when it does, we finally find the acceptance and the security we're eagerly longing to discover. And it changes the way we relate to others. We never stand so tall as to look down on anybody because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The one who laid down his life for us is the one who accepts us as we are and that's where we find the motivation to keep trying to lay down our lives, fail as we may at doing it. But in Christ, there is no pretense and so if we are in Christ, he will ultimately begin to remove our own pretense. And so the way we lay down our lives for him is accepting that he laid down his life for us.